2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what you're supposed to be reading. That's 1 Corinthians. How about we read what I told you we would read, and let's read 2 Corinthians verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds to Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, this is Paul writing, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of our life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, the gift granted to us through many. For our boasting is this, verse 12, the testimony of our conscience. I guess we're going to stop. I'm wrong on both ends. We're going to stop at verse 11. How many want to pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word today. Thank you, Lord, that um, you are among us. Thank you for your love that when we were hopeless, you were relentless. You came after us. Thank you, Lord, that you comfort us in our trial. You strengthen us when we no longer have strength. And I pray, Lord, today that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that um, this would be a holy, sacred moment. I ask God that you would invade this place with your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would captivate our attention to hear your word today. Nothing that I speak, but only what you say through me. I ask God that you would anoint me, not because I've earned it or deserve it. Nothing could be further from the truth. But because I need it, captivate our attention. Encourage hearts, Lord, that may be discouraged. Strengthen hearts, Lord, that may feel weary. And challenge us as the people of God to recognize that you are working on a much larger project than just this little blip called earthly life. You're working on an eternity. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see that in ways we have never seen that before and change and transform us in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The uh, author of War and Peace, uh, Leo Tolstoy, Russian author, once wrote this. It's a really powerful statement. It is by those who have suffered that the world has advanced. It is by those who have suffered that the world has advanced. Suffering is um, not a fun Sunday morning subject, but suffering is the lot of many, not the least for those who labor for the cause of Jesus Christ. Suffering can warp our perspective and it can even strain, if not completely shipwreck, the faith of some. But it is needed in our lives. Suffering need not shipwreck your faith. Suffering need not cause you to doubt who God is. As a matter of fact, suffering can be the very catalyst that pushes you into great advancement for an accomplishment in the kingdom of God. That is the subject of Paul's prologue in this second letter to the church at Corinth. Suffering can drive us to God. It can cement our relationship with others. Suffering can even drive us to a deeper passion and a deeper desire to know Jesus and walk with him. As a matter of fact, let me say it this way, because this is really the subject of today's message. Suffering can actually be redemptive. It can be redeemed by God. How many really believe, and let me ask the question before you raise your hand, how many believe that God does work all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? And so God can really indeed redeem our suffering. The suffering of Paul is well documented. It's one of the main reasons, as a matter of fact, that he was challenged in Corinth. Some said you can't really be an apostle because you've suffered too much. If you were really a man of God, you wouldn't have all these problems, is what they said to Paul. And so Paul documents well his suffering. In chapter 2, 1 through 4, Paul says he wrote out of great anguish and great distress of heart. He gets a little more explicit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and here's what he writes. He says this, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Possibly his greatest explanation of his suffering is found in chapter 11. Listen to these words, I've worked much harder, Paul said, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and I've toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. 
I've been cold and naked. Besides everything, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. How many of you feel bad for thinking about not coming to church this morning because your foot hurt, all right? Can you imagine that? Then in chapter 12, he talks about the thorn in his flesh, which he begs to be delivered from. But the divine response is, God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul's affliction was extraordinary. He said, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us when we were in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life, yet we had the sentence of death in ourselves. He offers no details. He calls it just trouble or affliction. The Greek word is uh, philipsios. Philipsios came to us. That's all he says. He doesn't describe it. He just said much suffering came to us. He doesn't give a description of that, likely because the people he was writing to knew what it was that he was talking about. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about the trouble. I don't want you to disregard the struggle that we've had because Paul considered this suffering part and parcel of Christian faith, especially of Christian ministry. He believed that's just what would happen to you if you gave yourself fully, you were going to experience some suffering. The Corinthians knew about the affliction, but their perspective of it was Paul's great concern. Note, he had had much affliction before, but this particular affliction that he writes about in 2 Corinthians seems to stand out as the greatest one. We had much trouble even to the point of death, he said. So what was that great affliction that he's writing about in 2 Corinthians? Some people suggest that Paul was under such duress from some of the Corinthians that hated him that he thought he might actually die. However, if it were primarily just psychological, it'd be hard to see why he thought he might actually die. So that doesn't seem to be the best. Some think this was a serious, potentially fatal illness. Some even think it was the thorn in the flesh. And the emphasis on God who raises the dead seems to maybe indicate that that would be what he was talking about. But the word philipsios is not Paul's usual word for sickness. So it's hard to see how Philipsios would fit into this particular scripture if he said, we even thought we might die. And he references the sufferings of Christ, so we're not certain how that would fit with sickness either. Probably most likely what Paul is talking about is severe persecution. It's physical, it is mental anguish, it is the potential of going to prison again. Maybe the mob violence that would come at him that might lead to death. No, this led to this great burden psychologically and emotionally that he had. That's why he said we were distressed beyond measure and it was above our strength. Deep despair. Even Paul said we even despaired of life altogether. This was serious. Thalipsios. This was serious suffering. So what should the believer expect? What can or should we all expect? Jesus said we should expect tribulation. In this world, you will have thalipsios. 
Romans 5.3 says that we should glory in our thalipsios because they produce patience in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul will note our light and momentary thalipsios or affliction. So here's the deal. We all should expect suffering. And indeed, this is part of what it means to live for Christ in a world that is hostile to the gospel. It might be work stress. You might be forced by your work or by those that are your employers. You might be stressed beyond measure because they want you or treat you poorly if you don't buy in to their agenda. You might have to forfeit a promotion because of your stand. Your job might be threatened. Your sports popularity might be threatened. If you're a young person, the chance to move up the ladder might be threatened. But at the very least, according to Jesus, every one of us should expect some kind of thalipsios. In this world, you will suffer thalipsios. But be of good cheer, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So here Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians how to live lives where our suffering, our thalipsios, whatever that looks like, our trouble, our affliction, he teaches us how to live lives where that is redeemed, where God does something with it. He transforms it in some meaningful way. So I want to share with you very quickly this morning five essential I call them life postures of a life that experiences redemptive suffering. How, how can what you're going through today, the stress of what you're going through, whether it's physical, whether it's psychological, whether it's work-related, whether it's family-related, how can God redeem your thalipsios? Let me share with you five pretty simple statements. Number one, redemptive suffering demands that we live our lives in benediction, and I'll explain that. That we live our lives in praise and in thanks. Benediction literally means an utterance or a blessing. It means to give thanks or to give praise. The psalmist calls us to this kind of life. In Psalm 34, David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 103, David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So Paul opens this section about suffering with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul was blessing God. He was living his life in benediction. Despite living with such overwhelming stress and such overwhelming thalipsios, so great that he was afraid he might even die. Paul lived his life as a life of praise and a life of benediction. And by his own example, Paul is now calling the Corinthians to consider how they view their own circumstances and how they respond to stress and thalipsios and persecution and overwhelming despair. When we are tempted to doubt that God is attentive to our circumstances, we need to be reminded that God is our Father. 
He is the Father of all mercies. He is the God of all comfort. And therefore, he's very aware of what we are going through, and he is deserving of our praise. David Garland describes the comfort that God gives us. He said, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a languorous feeling of contentment. It's not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls our pain. But this comfort is a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. Comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. How many want to live your lives unbending when difficult times come? You want, to, you want to have a resolve that even when the pressure comes, I'm still living my life in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the God of all comfort. That's the kind of comfort he gives. So what does it mean that he's the God of all comfort? It might mean that he's a God who always encourages us, and that is true. But more likely, and with what follows, it means, look at me, he is the God of every possible encouragement. He is comprehensive. No matter what you are going through, he is the God of all comfort. He is comprehensive, and when you suffer, he comforts you, he strengthens you, he meets your need. Are we living our lives in benediction? The God of all comfort strengthens us. Sometimes you get on the other side of a trial and you think, how did I get through that? It was the God of all comfort stiffening your resolve, strengthening you to make it through. He's worthy of our praise. If you want God to redeem your suffering, you have to live a life of benediction. Are we living our lives in benediction as we face day-to-day discouragement? Are we characterized by blessing him? Do people say of you, that's a person that's just always praising God. No matter what they go through, they seem to always be smiling. They seem to always be saying, God is sufficient. If we're going to have our suffering redeemed, we have to live lives of benediction. It's crucial to redemptive suffering. Number two, redemptive suffering demands that we live our lives with perspective. It's an interesting text here. Paul says this, speaking of God who comforts us in all of our tribulation. And notice this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation always abounds through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer for. If we are comforted, it is for your consolation and your salvation. Let me just walk through this. This is powerful. This might, this should be life-changing if you'll hear what I'm about to say. If we are living as God calls us, number one, we should not be surprised if we experience some suffering. Peter said, do not think it strange, the fiery trial which is to try you. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And Paul said, the godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So that is, Peter, 
Jesus and Paul saying we should expect it. So how many think we ought to probably expect it in our lives? Soren Kierkegaard said, when one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers away with that man, he does not deserve to live. Know that this is the Christianity of the New Testament. In other words, when you cause those who hate God and love evil to be repulsed, it's probably because you are living a godly life. Let's take another brief look at this word, thalipsios. In the Greek, outside of the Bible, it means pressure. It's used often to mean pressure. In scripture, it can mean troubling circumstances or events that bring about intense distress, oppression, or persecution. Paul uses it 15 times to simply mean the harsh difficulties of life. Can we just talk real honestly for a moment? You don't even have to raise your hand, but how many would agree that sometimes life brings some pretty harsh difficulties? Sometimes things are hard. Sometimes relationships are broken. Sometimes our bodies are weak. Sometimes we lose people we love. Sometimes our job doesn't work out. Sometimes it seems like things are falling apart. This is primary. Please get this. The encouragement that God gives to us does not end with us. But it has a greater purpose for the community of God's people. Being comforted, strengthened by God, we are then able to strengthen others, to empathize with others, and minister to others who have been scarred. So Paul says the comfort with which you have received, you are now to comfort other people. We have to look at our thalipsios with the right perspective. There are four crucial points of perspective. First of all, it covers any and all troubles and afflictions we might have in all of our tribulation. In all, that is every kind, each and individually, God comforts us in all of those. Secondly, please get this, Paul's emphasis flies in the face of Western Christianity and American Christianity because Paul's emphasis is on the encouragement and not the suffering. Paul knew, please listen, look at me for just a moment. He knew that he could not encourage anyone if he had not himself suffered. This is countercultural. We are taught if we suffer, we are the victim. We are to deny any responsibility. We are entitled. We don't want to worry about anyone else's responsibility because there is something going on in our lives. We want to be entitled to something rather than responsible for something. Biblical Christianity is not saying because I have suffered, I'm entitled to something. Biblical Christianity is because I have suffered, I am responsible for something, and that is to comfort others who themselves are now suffering. Say amen if you believe that. That's the Bible. That's not Kevin Holt. That's what it says. You are to look at your suffering through a perspective that says, if I am, then it's so that I can ultimately encourage someone else. Biblical Christianity 
listen to me, is not worldly living. It is counter our culture. That's why Jesus said, if you want to lose, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. Do you all understand that this book is not how the secular world lives? And we have to make a choice. Either we live by the secular world standards, which gets victimized, and oh, poor me, and we whine, and we self-pity, and we wallow in our defeat and our hurt feelings, or we live how this book says, and we say, my suffering, I'm going to look at it through the perspective that there must be a reason, and God wants me now to encourage and comfort somebody through their suffering with the same comfort he gave me when I suffered. I will just tell you, I don't often say this occasionally, but that is good preaching this morning, all right? It is. It's important. Thirdly, the extent to which we suffer is always equally matched by God's comfort. As our sufferings in Christ abound, so does his consolation. It's sufficient grace. Grace out of his fullness. Paul says, we abound in the sufferings of Christ. What are the sufferings of Christ? Being in a world hostile to Jesus Christ. To experience what Jesus would experience if he were here. Paul learned that when he was on his way to kill himself, kill Christians himself, and, and God spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul was like, I don't think I'm persecuting you. Who was he persecuting? Christians. And what God was saying is, that's my body. Your person, when you persecute them, you are persecuting me. And so when you experience suffering and I experience suffering, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Number four, sufferings helps us with our perspective. Sufferings remind us we are part of a bigger project of God with a purpose that makes sense out of our own experience and suffering. You ever think, how did that happen to me? How did that happen to them? That doesn't make sense. Look at me. We are part of a larger project than our happiness tomorrow or next week. We are part of a much larger project. God is wanting to use us to comfort and strengthen people that are hurting. David Brooks writes this powerful article in the New York Times, and he lays out this really incredible picture of providing comfort Rabbi Elliot Kukla once described a woman, he writes, with a brain injury who would sometimes fall to the floor. People around her would rush immediately to her to get her back on her feet, oftentimes before she was quite ready. She told Kukla, I think people rush to help me because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. You see, we all need someone to get down on the ground with us. That's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. He became like us. He got down on the ground with us. And he's calling us now when we suffer to take the comfort that he's given to us and get down on the ground with someone else and encourage them and comfort them in their pain. Say amen if you believe that. Thirdly, redemptive suffering demands we live our lives in hope. And our hope for you is steadfast. 
because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. You see, Paul was enduring great opposition, but nevertheless, he lived his life hopefully because he knew that true believers in Corinth who were themselves experienced trouble would be more closely knit to him in his suffering. When the people of God suffer opposition and trouble, it is a hostile world beating against the body of Christ. When you go to work and your employer tells you that you have to do something or face the consequences, it's something that is against your stand. When you lose a job or you lose a promotion or you lose a popularity or you lose friends, it's a hostile world beating against the Lord's body, but what it does is it brings the body together, unifies us. We pray and we encourage one another. It strengthens our hope. That's why, that's why we need the church. That's why we need the body of Christ so we can encourage one another. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to Indians. She suffered enormously in her life. She said, I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. I have wondered if it can be the same in the sphere of prayer. Does pain accepted and endured give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat near some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it be worthwhile to suffer 10 thousand times yes she said and surely it must be so for we are so drawn into the fellowship of calvary with our dear lord and toward others god never wastes his children's pain perspective we must have is god's not wasting this suffering he is preparing me to help someone else and encourage someone else. Number four, and I need to hurry. Redemptive suffering demands we live our lives in self-abandonment. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves but in the God who raises the dead. Look at me for just a moment. Paul clearly says that they were allowed to suffer so that they could be pushed beyond their own measures to fully trust God. For he alone has power to raise the dead. Paul said God allowed us to suffer so we'd quit trusting ourselves. So we would be fully dependent upon God. Can I just tell you the biggest issue we have, and I'm talking about right here behind the pulpit and across America, is we are pretty self-dependent. We trust ourselves. We got enough money. We got enough stuff. We got enough education. We can make it. We've got enough experience. Sometimes God allows us to suffer so we're pushed beyond ourselves. And we have to trust him. Say amen if, if you believe that. The message says we felt like we had been sent to death row. We, we were beyond ourselves. Severe struggles have a way of putting our limited resources 
into perspective. I'm going to skip that next quote, Shelley. This is where Paul and his companions find themselves. They're pushed beyond themselves, pushed beyond their resources. And here they learn the principle of God-reliance. To let go of self-reliance, to let go of despair, and say, God, I'm pushed beyond myself, but now I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to find out how great you really are. George Guthrie said this, Christian discipline means for an apostle and for the church as a whole a progressive weakening of man's instinctive self-confidence and of self-despair to which this leads and the growth of a radical confidence in God. Can I tell you something? I'm almost afraid to pray because I know what it might mean. But, but I, don't, I don't know what the next 10, 20 years of my life and ministry, if I continue that long, and that's certainly my plan today, all right? I don't know what it's going to hold. But as I watch the news and I see what's going on, I think it's going to need a radical confidence in God. I think I need a radical confidence in God. And I'm not certain we can get that until we're driven to a radical lack of confidence in ourselves. So I'm praying, God, be as easy with me as you can. <laughs> but I want a radical confidence in you. I don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. But I want you to get me to the point where I can radically trust you for whatever may be ahead. Why don't you stand with me? I'll give you the last point. We'll be done. It's a quick point. Everybody just hold steady. Worship team is going to join us on the platform. I feel like I need to apologize to preaching to you about suffering on Sunday morning, but it's the text. We're going through 2 Corinthians and I'm really not a good pastor if I don't teach you and myself how to deal with suffering. And I want to be a good pastor, so here you go. I'm not apologizing, all right? How about that? So here's how he ends our text today. Speaking of Jesus who delivered us from so great a death. He did, past tense, and he does deliver us, present tense. And in whom we trust, he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. No, Paul says that God delivered them from so great a death. And he is continually, Paul saying, Paul said, doing that. And then Paul said, and we trust that he will keep doing that. I want everybody to look right here. I'm going to challenge your thinking for just a moment. We thank God that he delivered us from such great a death. He is delivering us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. There is in that statement a hint of Paul saying, he delivered us from death then, he's delivering us from death now, but he might not every time. We trust he will. Paul knew that a time would come when he would be in a Roman prison 
And he would say, I have fought a good fight. And I'm ready to be delivered up for the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew there was going to come a time that God in this larger purpose was going to say, this time not on this earth are you going to be delivered. So Paul, while not, listen, please get this. This may be, this may be one of the most important things I've ever said. Paul, while not confident in the deliverance, was certain about God as the appropriate object of his trust. You have delivered us in the past, you're delivering us now, and we are trusting you to deliver us in the future. But whether it looks like we think it should look or not, I know I'm trusting the right person. This is the rarely taught faith that trusts God rather than trying to manipulate God. It is a level of spiritual maturity that only is reached by those who allow God to redeem their suffering. Suffering can indeed be redemptive, and Paul taught that beautifully. We don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you, you are not, look at me, you are not making a mistake if you put all your trust and confidence in God. That is not, that is the best move you can ever make. N.T. Wright said, we are not to be surprised if living as a Christian brings us to the place where we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. That is normal Christianity. Despite the fears and struggles, it is the most blessed place to be. And I love maybe my favorite author, A.W. Tozer, how completely satisfied to turn from our own limitations to a God who has none. Wow. God, I've run out. I'm limited, but you have none. And I'm going to trust you. That's why it is by those who have never, those who have suffered that the world is advanced. Father, speak to our hearts. Teach us to come to the limit of our own abilities and strength and fully trust you, the one who has no limitations and no inabilities, I pray in Jesus' name. Your heads bowed for just a moment. I wonder if there's anyone here today that would say, Pastor Kevin, I don't know Jesus Christ. Not serving him. My heart is not right with him. Not ready to meet him. Never placed my faith in him. I've never prayed and said, Jesus, and said, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. But today, I want to give my life to Jesus. Anyone in this room that would slip up a hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this room this morning, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to Jesus today. Let me ask a second question with heads still bowed. Are there those today that are going through? You're going through the lipsyosh. You're going through affliction, struggle great despair and you say today I've come to the end of my limitation or I've, I've reached my limit and I just by an upraised hand want to say I'm placing myself into the hands of a God who has 
no limitations. How many would raise your hand? Are there those in this room right now, today, I'm going through something difficult in my life. As we sing this course, there are several hands. Do you mind just stepping up to the front? I just wanted somebody to stand behind you and pray with you as we close. Would you step out right now? Several hands were raised. Just step out and stand across the front. Go ahead and lead us, Pastor Clayton. And as these get up here, can I get a few to come and stand behind them? Would you do that? Just step out right now. We're going to pray with them. Go ahead and lead us. Is the name of Jesus wonderful? Others step out and quickly, real quickly, just step out. Lay a hand on their shoulder. Can come to him to have their sins removed. Isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? Isn't the name of Jesus beautiful? of the enemy but Lord your word says in this world we should expect tribulation we will have it your word says the godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution but your word also says you are the God of all comfort and you will comfort you will strengthen us all and in all I pray God right now that you would begin to redeem that suffering Lord, you would begin to redeem that thalipsios. God, you would begin that affliction and that despair. You would even right now in their minds begin to show them how you're gonna use that. God, how they're gonna minister to other people that are broken, how you're gonna get them through this so that they then can comfort others with the same comfort that you have given to them. I pray God right now that they would just let go of their ability. Lord, they would reach the place of self-despair and they would say, God, I, I have all these limitations, so I'm turning to you because you have none, and I trust you, and I know, God, that you will see me through. I pray, God, right now that you would do a work in their lives. Father, that they would trust you more than they've ever trusted you before, that self-trust would just begin to disintegrate, and God-trust would become greater than ever before. I pray that right now. In Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Just worship him together. And thank